Honeymead Radio. This is Joanna Barron, and today we are again talking about the Section 33 Notwithstanding Clause. It's part two in a longer debate-type conversation that we released last time with Maxime Saint-Hilaire of Sherbrooke, Leonid Sirota of AUT Law School, and Jeff Siglet of Stanford Law School. So please listen to that before this. Uh, it picks up directly with Maxime responding to a point of Jeff's that historical intentions matter. And in this specific context, uh, the fact that important parties, the original compromise of the 1982 charter would not have signed on without the, the presence of the notwithstanding clause um, normatively means that the notwithstanding clause in its use is legitimate. So in this post-mortem, we get a bit deeper into what can be derived from historical intentions, in this case, the historical records surrounding the adoption of the Charter in 82, and whether, as Leonid argues, it's more or less entirely up to political actors to decide the norms surrounding the usage of provisions like the Notwithstanding Clause. So please enjoy part two of Is Section 33 a Useful Tool or a Loaded Gun? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to respond to, to, to that and to, uh, to Jeff's point. Um, um, I want to get back to the historical intent argument. Uh, I think sometimes it's useful to, to look at it. Sometimes it's, it's much, it is much less. Uh, I, I, I just want to give you an example. If we, we all know that the Constitution Act of 1867 uh, was... Uh, composed of very uh, contradictory and uh, incompatible uh, elements. We had uh, centralist, uh, unitary state uh, parts into it, um, there was a, which were in tension with very strong uh, federal components. So looking at, at the historical intent is, uh, wasn't very useful, so basically uh, because it was a constitution act, courts had to decide. They had to, and they, the, the, Pri the Privy Council decided that Canada was going to have a very federative, uh, like a real uh, uh, federal constitution. So uh, my point is, uh, I care much more from a, a rule of law perspective. I care about what what we did, not only what we intended to do, and what we did in 1982 uh, was to entrench rights and freedoms. We had, uh, we had given protection in quasi-constitutional statutes, but we decided to entrench them into uh, the formal constitution. So that's what they did. That's what we have to live with. And now we have to, inter to interpret and think about the legit um, legitimacy of any use of section 33 according to what, what was done. Uh, so my point is, it's, it's supposed to be meaningful, uh, the entrenchment of rights and freedoms into the Constitution Act in 1982. And I think there's also an international global experience of the overriding of rights. And I think what we did in 1982, to answer your point, Joanna, is that we by entrenching those rights into the Constitution Act, uh, we were giving the courts uh, some form of priority, of prior say, on the, the defining and interpretation of rights. 
And I think that's how precisely Section 33, as a, a trade-off or, or a compromise, has to be politically interpreted. I think it has to be interpreted as something legislators would use in case exceptional, under exceptional circumstances, and we were trusting them. So I think that's when we understand what was done and we go beyond some very contradictory uh, testimony of, of what, what people intended to do, uh, I, think, I think it's better to keep, to keep up with a practice that is faithful to uh, uh, international law and, and global standards of constitutional law. And Jeff said my point was, uh, was uh, my opinion was um, in accordance with the, the, was the dominant one. Well, I hope it is, but I'm not <laughs> sure, given the recent popularity of the, the critique of new constitutionalism, I wonder if the new constitution, constitutionalism uh, hasn't become uh, a little old, because I, I'm not sure it's, it's, it's still the dominant one. I, I, I think... The, the, the new, uh, the so-called new orthodoxy uh, is not uh, that orthodox anymore. Um, I hope I'm wrong. Can I say something about exception, ex the, ex the criterion sure. of uh, exceptional usage? Uh, so I, what I don't understand about Maxime's point, and I, I, I hope he's not done, I hope he, I hope he uh, is willing to say a little more because I'm, I'm just curious about it. What, why would exceptionality be our criterion for our understanding when the court should use uh, the notwithstanding clause? It seems to be that exceptionality is a it is a as a temporal uh, category that would be the result of different kinds of criteria um, that we might employ to say, look, this is when it should be used. It, it sounds like what's beneath exceptional. The exceptional usage for uh, for Maxime is that the court should only use it, like Lean had said, in these train in these train wreck cases. I mean, the, the legislature should only be deferential and only use the clause in these train wreck cases. But I mean, to, to the historical record is pretty clear that the that Section 33's initial purpose was not to uh, have some some kind some some reserve for train wreck cases. But to protect uh, it in 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 the various jurisdictions, the but especially in the provincial ones, the ability of the of the provincial governments and the federal government to express reasonable disagreements about rights with the with the courts, where 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 legislatures found that these these to be compelling. But then you're coming back with the okay. May, may I just uh, no? Is it is it my turn or not? Yeah, I, I was going to say, uh, th uh, this is, again, the, um, the original intent argument. Uh, so I, I think I said why. I don't think it's very useful here. But, but, but to answer the question where m my interpretation comes from, well, it comes from the, from, from the very words. I mean, it's, it, the words say it. It's, we're talking about fundamental rights that are protected into a Constitution Act. And I believe in something called the hierarchy of norms. And I think putting fundamental rights in a constitution act, even though there's an overriding clause, 
uh, to me, it's pretty clear that it means that uh, overriding of fundamental rights uh, protected in a Constitution Act would be something fairly exceptional. And that interpretation, which is in line with the hierarchy of norms and, and what I call legal science, I know it's very controversial to use the, the word science um, in that way in English, uh, but I think it's 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 very classic classic classical uh, in in legal science to to refer to some form of hierarchy of norms and 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 this uh, and this is uh, in compliance with uh, international instruments. If you take sec uh, Article 15 of the European Convention on Human Rights, and if you take the Venice Commission's uh, Commission opinion. On, on the overriding of rights, you have the, the same basic idea, which I, I find pretty just logical. Can I, can I add uh, another perspective on that? So the, the original intention argument, uh, as all original intention arguments, seems to favor the intentions of some parties to what was actually a, a collective process. So yes, we know from Jeff what the intention of Alan Blakeney and Peter Lagid was. Well, very well. The intention of Pierre Trudeau was very different. So he made this grudging concession to get everyone on board. His intention was obviously not that uh, this clause was going to be used uh, very frequently at all. He would perhaps prefer the charter without. So the intentions don't really get us anywhere. We are left with a text and then we have to live with it in one way or another. So it's actually in this way, it's for the political actors to develop the, the norms, uh, perhaps eventually ripening into conventions as to how they are going to use this uh, provision, just as it was for political actors uh, after the enactment of the 1867 constitution to develop norms and practices and eventually conventions about how they were going to use, for example, the, the federal power to disallow provincial legislation. And they came to the conclusion over time, not right away, but over time that using this power would have been incompatible with the, the federal principle that was a dominant one in that constitution. So in the same way and much more quickly, political acts came to this collective conclusion that using the notwithstanding clause uh, perhaps outside of train wreck cases and perhaps at all was contradictory to the purpose of the uh, to the dominant principle of the 1982 settlement which is the protection of individual rights and so there is there is nothing about the intentions of some of the people who wanted that was put in uh, that binds us what binds us is the text the text is there nobody is challenging that but the fact that it's there doesn't impose on us any sort of requirement to use it. This is my point about a gun. We don't have to fire that gun. This is not theater. Well, the gun's been fired, so... Uh, and I, I'd say that uh, two things. One, uh, if, I, if I may, um, uh, one is on, on your characterization of Trudeau's intentions, I actually think that you might be surprised to find that he, in a, in a private letter to the Archbishop of Toronto, promised to use the notwithstanding clause if in, to protect religious freedom uh, in cases where abortion was, in case abortion was legalized by using the charter. 
Um, I actually haven't read the letter. I've just seen it cited, so I shouldn't talk about what it says too much. But it seems to indicate that even Trudeau's opinion might have been somewhat in line with the with with my view that it's not uh, with our view that it's not uh, necessarily only in train wreck cases um, that the clause can be invoked. But I don't under I, we I don't think Joanna would concede, and I certainly don't concede that the fundamental principle of rights and the rule of law is undermined by having legislatures have the ability to insulate their responses to judicial rights decisions from further judicial review for a five-year period, which we all know could result in a parliament in a Westminster system in a change of government, which might very well reverse course depending on the views of the electorate. How could the development of that norm itself be understood to simply be fundamentally at odds with the very principle of individual rights? I don't, I just don't see that. It seems it requires a caricature of the use of the clause as a nuclear option, which is a possibility, a logical possibility. I mean, if Kevin O'Leary or Lisa Ray did use the clause the way that they promised to in the conservative leadership convention, then we might very well have, you might be very well right that that would be grounds for considering the, the, that usage of the notwithstanding clause as at odds with the principle of individual rights. Well, Schmidt, uh, I think the burden is on those who defend the notwithstanding clause to show that in using it, legislatures are going to act differently from how they act in the normal course of events, which is much closer to Lizarate and Kevin O'Leary than to Jeremy Waldron. And the uh, what happens here with Good Spirit is an example of that because the government of Saskatchewan does not advance an interpretation of religious neutrality, whether it's in technical language or not, that's not the point. The point is they say school choice as if the end justifies the means, even though we know perfectly well, from, as I said earlier, that the end could be achieved in means that are consistent with religious neutrality. The government is interested in that. It's interested in saving a few dollars at the expense of people who are uncomfortable with sending their children to Catholic schools. That's all that's all that's going on. Again, it's a majority satisfying itself at the expense of the minority. And it's in, in, in a financial sense in this case. Uh, and there is no reason to think that the notwithstanding clause is going to be used in some, some sort of high-minded way. That's not how legislatures operate. I'm, I'm sorry because I think I didn't make myself clear, but uh, maybe that Let's delete the Karschmidt part in the uh, in the broadcast. But my basically my point was even an anti-rule of law thinker such as Karl Schmidt would have preferred courts to to Parliament having the last say in the de in the defining of rights. So I, I think there's a long there's a long history of people uh, pro and anti-rule of law being very suspicious of legislators having the last say when it comes to the defining of rights. That was my point. Well, I think Carl Schmidt's always interesting, Maxime, but I do, I do, and so I appreciate the reference, but I do think that he was an anti-parliamentary thinker in Weimar, Germany, and uh, therefore I agree with Joanna that an, his anti-parliamentarianism uh, has something to do with yes. 
with his point of view about this. And I, and I, I think Joanna and I are, are, are clear, like, if we trust the ability of the legislatures to get together and write these rights uh, and represent us in that endeavor, it seems it seems hard to say that they, they could never have another opinion about these things, these matters, subsequently. About Leon, just if we're going to have a longer version, uh, Leonid's uh, assertion that the Brad government, the wall government, has not offered any reason except for public choice, school choice, for its, um, for, uh, uh, as a justification of its intention to invoke the notwithstanding clause. Well, I mean, the, the bill hasn't been proposed yet invoking the clause, so it seems hard, hard for me to, it seems difficult, in my view, to say what the reasoning will be. Um, but I, well, Maybe they'll listen to this podcast and, and decide to to invoke the uh, very reasonable, I think, very reasonable view of religious neutrality that could justify their decision. That would be great. That might make me change my mind a little bit. I will not hold my breath. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the bill and to the debates. I think it will be know. interesting. I don't know. I think you I may be a little overly pessimistic breath. because we are very uh, blessed to be in a line of work where the rubber does sort of hit the road. I mean, look at uh, our friend, uh, our colleague, Gregoire Weber, who works for the Minister of Justice, who has, you know, very, uh, very sort of elaborate views about the relationship between the courts and legislators. And I, I believe that he's instrumental in the new practice of affixing a charter compliance statement to new government legislation. So I, I do think that, you know, what I justify, what I do for a living, is that it's important to air out the, these ideas and to make these normative arguments because the people in the halls of power hopefully are listening. And sometimes the people who make the arguments themselves enter the halls of power. Uh, and Canada is a, is a small place <laughs> after all. And what about the waste of judicial resources and, and, and public uh, money? Because why not appealing the decision? Uh, why why uh, override rights as long as your as government disagree with uh, a superior court decision? I mean, is it? I don't know. Is it? Is it? Is it? Uh, uh, an issue well, I don't for know. you? From my understanding, uh, the wall government indicated its its intention to use the notwithstanding clause in part to avert the sort of uh, impending crisis of thousands of students not knowing where they would be going to school in September. So there was a very real sort of pressing uh, policy objective, which, as we said, we don't think in and of itself can justify the use of the notwithstanding clause. But I think that was their thinking of using it in conjunction with pursuing a judicial appeal. Except, of course, that the, the decision actually says that it stayed for 18 months. It stayed until the, the end, not of this school year that just ended, but the following one. And it would have been stayed on appeal. Uh, so I think there is a bit of fear mongering and demagogy going on with that, uh, which is not a, a very optimistic sign. Uh, that said, sure, if, if, if they, I would say if they had used the, the notwithstanding clause specifically with re regards to, let's say, students who are already registered in, in those schools and to say, well, we are going to use it to the extent of allowing those particular students to finish where they are. 
I think that's that would have been relatively defensible. Uh, but that's not what they're doing. So, Lena, we can get you on the record that if, if the bill references some conception of religious neutrality along the lines of what Joanna and I have argued for, that'll go some way to convincing you that we're right. <laughs> well, it will be it will be one uh, one incident that will weigh on your side of the balance, which will be set against the uh, the Quebec precedent of nineteen eighty eight. Uh, uh, so. That will be something to be said for your side. I don't think it will be conclusive. Thanks for joining us. Visit us at runningmeetsociety.ca. Follow us on Twitter, runningmeetsoc. We'll be back in two weeks with a very interesting interview with an objectivist on free speech. Thanks.